Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Mona Chalabi, host of a new podcast from TED called Am I Normal? Everyone wants to know if they're normal. Is my body normal? Is my brain normal? Are my feelings normal? So each week we'll tackle a question by digging into the numbers, consulting experts, strangers, and even my mum to get the bigger picture. This season, how long does it take to get over a breakup? How many friends do you need? And what on earth is spermageddon? Find Am I Normal wherever you listen. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, what is new with you? Uh, well, Jason, I'm really excited. I just launched this morning this new company called The Lost Debate, and it's a nonprofit media company whose mission is to provide uh, stories, ideas, and policy analysis for people across the political divide. And in many ways, this is an extension of the work that we've been doing here, which is to try to cut through the polarization and misinformation online. And uh, most of the work that we're doing is on YouTube. Uh, and I encourage our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Like we've only been up for a few hours and we have already a thousand subscribers and it's called The Lost Debate. You could search us on YouTube. We also release in podcast form, but YouTube is really where uh, we're producing most of our content. And essentially these are, we produce a show twice a week. That's a series of segments. And the segments are meant to counter specific pieces of misinformation that are out there or just uh, stories that we think the media has gotten wrong. And then we slice them up into shorter videos that people can share either to counter misinformation or to advance uh, certain ideas. Uh, so I'm really pumped about it. Uh, me too. I've been, uh, I've had the opportunity to, to hear about it as you've been putting it together. And I am taking it right now and putting it on Twitter. So, you know, here comes the candor Twitter bump, Ravi. Prepare yourself. There it's you go. Be, I, and, I, I, I hope your website <laughs> is really ready for this level of traffic. Well, uh, I always appreciate that. Uh, and I always appreciate the support. And to our listeners, this is a nonprofit media company. And so I just want to warn you that I won't be talking about partisan politics there. Majority 54 will be the place for that analysis. But that also means that I'm going to I have an obligation to be to avoid advocating for political candidates or anything that would appear partisan. So some of you might get mad at me for what appears to be moderation in my positions, but I just want to warn you ahead of time. But it, it is super useful content. I've got a lot of young, super talented people here who uh, really understand how to arm people with, with the kind of stuff they need to push back at the insanity on the internet. So I couldn't be more excited. Awesome. All right. News of the week. All right. The news of the week. Uh, we, we have not talked a lot about the Virginia election, which is coming up. 
but uh, it's happening Tuesday, and the race has been narrowing. Uh, the 538 average, uh, the last time I checked this morning, was at 1.7, an advantage for McAuliffe, which really, for those of us who've been around the block, means this thing is essentially tied heading into the home stretch. There is a big fight over the suburban votes, and Democrats largely have taken Virginia as a, as a pretty solidly Democratic state at the presidential level and in, and in the previous gubernatorial election, largely based on inroads in the suburbs, as they have done around the country. Uh, but it looks like they are losing some ground in the Virginia suburbs. Jason, what are you, do you have any predictions? And how, how are you thinking about the results in terms of like, what would be a meaningful result for the national conversation coming out of Virginia? Uh, I don't have any predictions. Um, I have a lot of I'm just worried. But, you know, I don't know if that's specific to this race or just like, you know, it's an election. So it's something to worry about. I think the, the, the reason that I'm worried is because this is your pretty standard trap for our side, which is that, you know, you got a Democratic president in place. Now, obviously, not enough ha- is getting done right now. And that causes some people to be like, ah, what was the point? And then it, but it also just having a Democratic president um, and having a, a Democratic Senate and House, I think, causes a lot of people to just continue to go, whew, glad that's over. And uh, and that's obviously a big concern because if the other side is all fired up and we're just like, OK, things seem to be all right now, then you have a turnout issue. And that just scares me. So I'm I'm worried about it as to what I think would be a big like a big bellwether thing that we could take from it. I think it's look, if it's super close I don't think you learn anything from it. If it turns out that the Republican wins by a ton or the Democrat wins by a ton, I think you can take something from that. Yeah. And it's I think the numbers in Virginia, as I was looking over them, are startling. When McAuliffe went, won the last time, because remember, this is a state where you can only serve one term at a time. And so McAuliffe won two terms ago during the Obama administration. And then um, we've had uh, Northam in between. But when McAuliffe won and Obama was in the White House, Obama actually, like Biden, was was struggling in the polls. I think it was either mid or low 40s. And when McAuliffe won, that was the first time that the sitting president in the White House uh, and the Virginia election um, were of the same, like the victory, the victor in the Virginia election were the same party since 1973. So generally speaking, Virginia voters are, um, they are contrarian <laughs> in a way. They They want... Uh, to kind of I, maybe it's their closeness to DC well, or like, whatever. It's like they an early midterm election, basically. That's a yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it gives them like a year before the midterm, and so in many ways signals where things are going, right? So in that sense, it could be a bellwether. Uh, you know, just for numbers' sake, Northam, the last guy who won, won by nine points. Uh, although some of those polls were narrowing in the end, he won by nine. Biden won by a similar margin. So you would expect something big here, uh, but. Uh, and this this actually steps on a little bit of the work I've been doing um, at this company I mentioned before. But I, I I took a deep dive into what the heck is happening in Virginia, uh, and this critical race theory debate is dominating uh, in these suburbs. And essentially, what I found is what we we talked about critical race theory on this podcast a few months ago, and we warned that there were activists who were cooking this issue up. Uh, and making it more than it was. And that's essentially what I've confirmed now. And they are being very effective. And there's this county called Loudoun County, which is like one of the critical battleground counties. It's one of the most affluent counties in the country. And it also happens to be the the last county in Virginia to integrate. 
and they have a whole host of problems with race in this county, and I won't go into them here, but um, the GOP has really successfully stirred up controversy in that county, and I think they're going to use this as a playbook on on using critical race theory around the country. Is that why they're doing this whole thing on like the banning of the book Beloved? And like because they don't mention that it's Beloved in the ad, they just like they, so for those who don't know, there's a an ad from the GOP candidate that features like a mom saying, "As a parent." It's tough to catch everything. So when my son showed me his reading assignment, my heart sunk. It was some of the most explicit material you can imagine. I met with lawmakers. They couldn't believe what I was showing them. Their faces turned bright red with embarrassment. They passed bills requiring schools to notify parents when explicit content was assigned. But then Governor Terry McAuliffe vetoed it twice. He doesn't think parents should have a say. He said that. He shut us out. Glenn Youngkin, he listens. He understands. Parents matter. Join- but what they don't mention is it's Beloved by Toni Morrison. Because what I don't get is, I get, I get, given what you were just saying, why the Republicans would be leaning into that. What I don't get then is why the Democrats are also leaning into it. I guess it's just because it's a turnout game. Yeah, I, I would say the Democrats are trying to avoid it, although there have been some unforced errors. There was a debate where McAuliffe was debating Yunkin, the GOP nominee, uh, and McAuliffe had a very unfortunate wording. He said, um, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach, which as a principal, former principal and superintendent, I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, and I've I've had school boards... If anybody wants to have fun, just Google my name and the book City of Thieves, which I think I've told people about. I've had a fight with school boards before where they try to tell us. I didn't to, I didn't to, know that. I remember you recommended that book to me and I read it and uh, loved it. I did not know that you had the I signed, to read it. This is a this is a funny aside that's relevant. It was like I signed this book that has mature themes in it. Uh, for seventh graders, which and it's a little early, but my sort of philosophy on life is that seventh graders know what sex is, and so if they learn about it in literature, I like the, great. I like by the way that that's your philosophy on life. Um. Yeah, on life, <laughs> not just not just literature, life, or maybe it's a philosophy. No, I have no, in no, life is probably I a better way to put we it. We should go with that's uh, your unifying philosophy yeah, on life. Yeah, but I I I love this book as you know, and I signed it to seventh graders, and I I was so involved in it that I was like involved in the classes, and I was training all the teachers to do it. And then a, a a school board member picked it up uh, who had other reasons to hate us uh, and tried to close us over this book. And so mm. I got in a huge fight with them. And then I stepped in it real bad by saying, you know, we cut out the parts that were really bad. And then they went after me for like censorship. So it was <sighs> like I couldn't win. Uh, but it was a funny little aside to say that I, I appreciate what, what, what McAuliffe is saying. But I think Democrats are flat footed in how they talk about this stuff because there really isn't a lot of, as we talked about a few months ago, there isn't really a lot of the kind of curriculum that they're talking about, like this kind of rank your privilege and say how racist you are type of curriculum that I think the the right is uh, obsessed about. It's more like what's happening in Loudoun County, which is there was a court order, there was an attorney general report just about a lot of racism that's happening in this district, both overt racism happening today, but also historic racism that has happened over time that's still playing out in schools. And they, they, they concocted a whole host of remedies to fix that. And the GOP very deftly has been pushing these buttons. And I think this is going to be their playbook across the country if they're able to use it successfully here. When in doubt, they sort of just pivot back to racism, right? Like like for you, your unifying philosophy is, you know, what sex is in seventh grade. For them, it's like, hey, yep. you know, 
black and brown people are scary, no matter what else is going on. I, I, I think that you can you can predict that coming out of it is that one way or another, um, particularly as the economy continues to improve, they will continue to get more racist because that's what they do. Right. You got to you got to make people right. feel fear in order to get them to to vote the way that they want them to vote. So that I think you can predict it, it will come out of it. Um, but yeah, look, I'm just worried about it. Um, Terry McAuliffe is a very adept campaigner. I, I, here's a it's Terry McAuliffe story time. So uh, when I was in uh, law school, I was, you know, thinking uh, I wanted to get into politics. And, and my wife and I started this uh, little group back home um, called Heartland Democrats, like back home in Kansas City. And uh, Terry McAuliffe was chair of the DNC at the time. And I was just like nobody. I was a law student. And somehow or another, I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew him. And so he sat down for coffee with us. And he was really nice and like gave us 30 minutes and gave us some advice. It was great. And then you know, cut to years later, um, I'm at a, uh, at a at a fundraiser in St. Louis, his first time running for governor. At this point, I'm, uh, I think I'm Secretary of State by this point. And so I show up at this fundraiser, um, and I think I even spoke a little. And I think in my opening remarks, I said something about how nice he was back when he had no idea who I was to spend this 30 minutes with me. And then uh, afterwards, we're like socializing, and it was me, Mayor of St. Louis, some other people there. And I made a joke to him about you know, I mean, it's a, it's pretty rough to have all these politicians in the room because it's just, you know, bodies in here that aren't writing checks. Uh, whereas, you know, there were a lot of people in there who had written checks, but I, I just made a joke like, oh, you know, it's the worst when us politicians show up because, you know, obviously we're comped. And he goes, wait a minute. All those years ago, I sat down with you and I gave you my time when most people wouldn't. And you're going to leave here without writing a check. And I'll be damned if I didn't write a 200 hour check before I left that place. <laughs> so anyway, wow. he's, you know, always be closing. Uh, that's the way he was nice he about once, it. He did it with a he smile. Once, he once wrestled an alligator uh, to get a check from a donor out of out of a dare. His his political memoir is excellent. Oh, I, I guess I could read it. I think, instead life, of just telling... I think it's called Life's a Party or something like that. But it's it's well, that's got a all sorts perfect of perfect name for I mean, because yeah. everywhere Terry McAuliffe yeah. goes, it does feel like he is the host of the party that you did even know what's happening. Jason, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I've had a pretty busy fall launching the Lost Debate. And during this really hectic time, mental health can often fall to the back burner. But thankfully, with our sponsor, BetterHelp, it's super easy to talk to a professional therapist online at my convenience. Yeah, with BetterHelp, it's not a crisis line. It's, it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. Uh, you can get matched with your own licensed professional therapist and start communicating within 48 hours. You can send them a message anytime and get thoughtful, timely responses, or you can schedule weekly video or phone calls. You know, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So you're going to make it super easy to change counselors so you can find the right fit. It's more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aid is available. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash M54. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. Jason, it's no secret that I'm always on the hunt for whatever the next thing I need to do to extend my wellness. And I'm obsessed right now with omega-3s. And what's the best way to find your omega-3s? Well, it's to eat more fish. 
Our listeners have an opportunity to eat more fish because if you like to cook, you know that flavorful meals start with high quality food and simple ingredients. And with Wild Alaskan Company, their seafood is frozen right after it's caught for peak freshness so that you can avoid the fuss of unhealthy sauces and over seasoning. Instead, all you need are a few simple ingredients and you got a delicious lunch or dinner for you or your whole family. Wild Alaskan Company delivers high quality, sustainably sourced wild caught seafood right to your door. Each shipment contains premium cuts of individually wrapped portions of delicious seafood that are ready to prepare and easy to cook. You can choose from salmon, cod, halibut, and more. And every month, there are different specials to explore. You can adjust, pause, or cancel your membership anytime, and they offer 100% satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. Right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash majority54. That's wildalaskan, A-L-A-S-K-A-N, company.com slash majority54 for $15 off your first box. WildAlaskanCompany.com slash Majority54. Make sure to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. This is a totally concocted transition, but speaking of parties, let's talk about the party happening on Capitol Hill over the Build Back Better bill. Well done. Uh, Biden is supposed to leave the country at the end of the week to go to Europe to do, among other things, engage uh, in a climate summit. There's a lot of reasons why he might want to get this bill wrapped up before he leaves. Number one is he doesn't want to go empty handed uh, to Europe when you know we're supposed to be pushing other countries to meet climate goals. Uh, we also have the Virginia election. We've talked about like the need to show progress before that election. But also like time's running out and the more time they spend negotiating this, the more bad things that could happen. And there was also a Schumer had put on the calendar at the end of October as the deadline for this bill. So many, many reasons to get this bill done. There is a lot of press to suggest that Democrats are making progress towards a deal. Um, Biden has been super engaged. He had a bunch of senators over his house in Delaware, kind of having like the summit uh, that we had previously talked about, like, you know, showing that he's hands on uh, in these negotiations. He also had uh, uh, a late evening meeting with Manchin and Cinema last night or Tuesday night. And it appears that they're very close to a deal. Jason, how optimistic are you right now? Uh, I, you know, I'm optimistic that something is going to get done. I mean, because look, when you name the thing the Build Back Better agenda, I mean, you're going to you're going to pass something. Like you're 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 going to make sure that something gets to your desk. I mean, I'm just I'm not even talking. I'm, maybe I sound a little cynical, but when you name something the same thing that you called your entire campaign, it's more than a campaign promise, right? I mean, it is at that point, it's like come hell or high water, we will have the picture of us at the Resolute desk signing this thing, and there will be people standing behind me. So I'm confident that'll happen. Whether it is going to be really meaningful or not, it's weird because like in the press, what you hear is you'll hear people saying like, oh, we are so close to a deal. And then uh, Boyle from Pennsylvania, the, the congressman, he said, what, what do you say? He goes, oh yeah, we're really close. He goes, what we lack is how to pay for it and what's in it. He's like, other than that, we are there. <laughs> so I'm like, I have no idea, you know? Well, there was some promising news, uh, and I know some of our listeners have previously asked about climate as it relates to this bill. And as of now, Biden and the Biden administration are saying that they think that the final number of climate funding in this bill is going to be $500 billion. Um, and that would come in at about a third of what this final bill uh, would come in at because the bill is is being talked about as a 1.5 to 1.7 trillion dollar bill. So a third of the bill could be climate funding, and uh, that is not much lower than what was originally proposed. I think what was originally proposed was 600 billion. So it's not that much of a cut. 
relative to other programs. And that, for context, the biggest investment we ever made in climate-related programs was the Recovery Act. And this would be five times what that funding was. So uh, I think there's some some reason for people to be hopeful, uh, especially on the climate front in this bill. Uh, there are certain things that I care about more than others. Like I think expanding Medicaid for at-home care for people with disabilities uh, and the elderly and chronic illnesses. Um, it looks like that's getting cut way more than it should. And I think that that was near the top of my list. So I'm a little frustrated by that. I hope some of that uh, comes back into the bill. What? Just curious, why is that at the top of your list? And we always talk about personalizing it on the show. I'm just curious. Yeah, I think like part of it is uh, my mom works in nursing homes uh, and has her entire life, and so I've spent a lot of time as a kid. You know, I'd go like do my homework on a nursing home floor or whatever, and I'm convinced that one of the biggest things we will look back on, and maybe our grandkids look back on about us as a society, it will be. Uh, and 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 just wonder what the hell we were thinking is how we treat the elderly in this country. And that's in nursing homes where like that's a better situation than a lot of people have. I see people drop off their relatives and never come back and see them again. And then I had my grandfather who bounced back and forth between a nursing home and at-home care and thankfully had a, a wife who is at home, uh, his second wife, who wasn't my grandmother. That's why, just in case you're curious, I'm calling her his wife, not my grandmother. But, you know, if it wasn't for her, I, I mean, he would, I don't even know, like, what would have happened to him. And so I think that we need to do more to provide at-home care. And there are some people who, obviously, I think a quarter of our country has uh, a physical disability of some form, you know, not talked about. That's a huge number of people, uh, even if I'm wrong here or there on, on how many that is. Those people often require at-home care their entire lives, and we just don't really fund it. And so that seems to me like the, if there's a role for government to solve something that the market is not meant to solve, that is like so high on my list. Sorry to go on a no, rant, no, but that's no, like I asked why you. I, think I, like, I think it's interesting. And it's super underfunded. Like if you talk to anybody who has to navigate Medicaid on this kind of stuff, it is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Well, and like it's, it's a voting block. It's, it's not unlike young kids in poverty. I mean, it's a voting block with no power. It's people at the end of their lives who our culture, unlike a lot of other cultures, has said like no, you really don't hold any sway here anymore. We're we're you we're right. we're, we're putting you out to pasture, and uh, you're really not part of this conversation anymore. And people don't anticipate; they don't really think ahead about that's going to be them. And so, as a result, it's I mean, it's like a political market failure. It's the weirdest thing. It's like if you're buzzing around on a golf court in Florida, you are at the maximum amount of your political power. Yeah. But the minute you can't walk over to that golf cart anymore, you are at the lowest ebb of your power yeah, politically. Well and, and you have the, the smallest voice, you know, and it's, it's crazy. Well, one big debate about this bill is how it's going to be paid for, as you alluded to. And I'm not sure what the hell is going on, Jason. I'm seeing headlines about all sorts of things. Uh, there are two headlines that really caught my attention this morning. One is that Cinema and Warren and Manchin seem to be supporting what I believe Manchin has just called before I walked into this room a patriot tax was the newest thing. Oh, I didn't see that. Uh, the, That's new. Cool. And I like this uh, if it's true, which I think it would be a 15% tax on corporations. And I don't know exactly how this would work, but I think essentially what they're saying is a lot of these corporations are playing tricks to avoid paying taxes. Like if you look at a lot of these big companies, they're paying zero in taxes or some really minuscule number because they're playing tricks about depreciation and investments. And they're saying, no matter what you are, what games you're playing, you must pay 15%. That's what I think they're proposing. And if that's true, and if they can hold on and pass this damn thing, wow, would that be awesome? 
okay, so I'm curious. So I, I just pulled up the Patriot text thing. Um, this is from 53 minutes ago. And they asked Manchin, uh, you know, how realistic is it that a deal get reached? And, he, and he's like, well, which deal do you want to talk about? And he goes into this long thing uh, about how he thinks there could be a deal. And then he says, first of all, I said this, everybody in this country that has been blessed and prospered should pay a patriot tax. If you're the point to where you're able to use all of the tax, tax forms, if you can, to your advantage, and you end up with a zero tax liability, but have had a very, very good life, and you've had a lot of opportunities, there should be a 15% patriot tax. That's me speaking. That's not, I'm not speaking for anybody else. Okay, basically, he just described the billionaire tax. Like, that's back where we are. Oh, so he wasn't even talking about the corporate tax that sent him doesn't seem like working. it. Yeah. And that seems kind of, okay. the corporate thing would seem kind of out of step with for him anyway. But it, but the thing that was surprising to me about cinema was it was out of step with her too. Yeah. Uh, because she had been opposing any tax increases. So, uh, but so okay, you got two different things going on. You got the cinema Warren conversation, which I just mixed with other things, which is the corporate tax, which I really like, and then you have this wealth tax, which would be a tax on billionaires, but it wouldn't be just any tax. And and basically, when they say billionaires, it's it's anybody with a billion dollars in assets or who makes a hundred million dollars or more a year for three consecutive years. And the the mechanism here is interesting because basically what they're saying is, we're not waiting for you to realize your investments and cash out. We're gonna actually ask you to assess the value of your investments before you even cash them out. And then we're gonna ask you to pay a tax on that. So people who own homes will be familiar with this because this is kind of how you pay property taxes in a lot of places. I think I like this. Um, I for sure I'm, like I, this. I, Hey, okay, let me, let me, I'm just going to go off for a second. Like, Yeah, go off. Yeah, yeah. I, all right, over the last few years. Are you going to disclose yourself as a billionaire? No, are you finally going to so, come out as a billionaire? No, no. But <laughs> I am going to disclose as somebody who uh, married someone with a high earning capacity. Um, and and it, that is to say that over the last few years, my wife and her career has, she's really hit a stride. And for those who don't know, Diana is a, an innovation consultant and a, and a speaker and a thought leader and, and, a, and a business owner, an entrepreneur. She's really, really good at all those things. And, and she's great at pull-ups now, and, I've noticed. And she's great at pull-ups, yeah. yeah. And uh, she basically, Diana, just nails pretty much everything uh, that she takes on, uh, including like motherhood and stuff like that. So over the last few years, our financial situation personally has been enhanced. Um, enhanced enough to where like, look, we're not like set, but but enhanced enough to where we actually have a neighbor who is a financial planner um, who usually does like planning for people who are in a much higher, much higher situation than us. And she really just does it for us as a favor. Like we're not in her league, but she's our friend. And so she, she, we're a client of hers. And every time that I go to see her, she is brilliant. And she has all sorts of things where she's like, okay, you can do this, this, and this. And it's nothing like tricky, but it's just an explanation of how it works when you go from one tax bracket to the next. And, you know, she who listens to this podcast and is great at her job is always like, hey, isn't this great? And it is great. But I always go, this is total bullshit. Like, this is so unfair. Why Why? Why is this afforded to people who have moved up in an income bracket and not, not to people who have gone down? And the overall point I'm making is that nothing that anybody doesn't already know, which is that it is so much easier to make more money when you've made a little bit of money as opposed to in this country yeah. when you haven't. It's so hard. It's so hard. And um, and it's totally unfair and it's complete bullshit. And the fact that, you know, billionaires 
and millionaires and everybody else can do things where they invest in something and they go, mm, no, I'm not going to realize the gains of this right now, which is to say, I'm not going to take the money. I'm going to put it in a whole other bucket. And that means that I won't pay taxes on it. Ooh, but it'll grow and I'll get more money later. Oh, and by the way, I get all sorts of great other benefits because I do have this money in this bucket and people know I do. It's just such a racket. And it's what Elizabeth Warren always says. It's totally rigged. So we need this tax so bad. Well, I, I want to clear up one thing, that, which is the conservatives are saying that this bill might not be constitutional. What's, what's their reason for that? I don't know about this. This one is creative. Okay. Uh, so they're claiming that the, there's a clause in the Constitution that says you cannot pass a bill of attainder. Uh, and uh, mm. essentially what this means and in practice is that you can't single out a group and impose punishment on them because of their group. So this, the you know, the case law on this is like communists, like you can't deny employment to communists or whatever. So as the reasoning goes here, we can't single out billionaires because they're like some kind of persecuted group. That's the constitutional <laughs> argument they're making. Um, this is not the first amazing. time that a bill of attainder argument has been made recently. You might have missed that it was made during the impeachment trial when Trump's lawyers tried to argue that that was him being persecuted because of, I guess, the group he belongs to. I don't know. I mean, it's it, it's strange. Now, I wouldn't put anything past this Supreme Court, uh, but it would be a stretch for that argument to succeed. Well, okay. The argument that I think they're going to lean into is the argument that they always lean into for a tax increase on rich people, which is you know some version of two. It's, it's like an A and B side to this argument. Um, the A side is just saying it's a tax increase over and over again without uh, and trying and hoping that people will miss who it's a tax increase on, right? And then the B side is trying to, when that doesn't work, is basically, well, look, if they're going to increase taxes on this group of people, then they're going to come after you next. And the way they're doing it with this yep. is it's like a mix of A and B because what they're doing is they're obscuring the the entire like machinery of going after unrealized gains and saying, oh, look, if you, if your 401k goes up, they're going to tax you. Like, no, 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 no. Unless your 401k has like a gazillion dollars in it, which it doesn't. And even then, it's still a foreign one. So they're not. Um, but like, that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to do that. Oh, right. And, and it's why, you know, the other day, Elon Musk, uh, who's the second richest human, uh, said, I think first now. Is he first? first. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. good, yeah, good yeah. for him. You know, woohoo. Congratulations, Elon. Um, I hope that fixes whatever was going on for you before, um, personally. Uh, he, he, you know, the other day he said, look, if they can tax, a, a person like me this way, they can tax regular people as well, to which I want regular people to respond like, we've been paying taxes the whole time, dude, like, because <laughs> like, yeah. he hasn't. I think they're tapping into this American psyche, which is that so many Americans look in the mirror and see a future billionaire. It's There's actually probably some good to that. It's part of our entrepreneurial spirit, but there are obviously some challenges that, and there's so much data on this that people constantly look up when their their politics in many ways are about what they're aspiring to. And I mean, it's a stretch to say that any you know meaningful segment of our society is going to get anywhere near Musk. And what's weird is like, I admire a lot of these people who who, uh, are entrepreneurs who made their money. Like I treat them differently than I would like, you know, Charles Koch's grandson or something. Like I, I actually think it's really 
like impressive what Elon Musk has done sure. with Tesla. I find I find him to be a genius and he's working on a problem that society needs to solve. So it's like really good in many ways, but that doesn't mean you get a free like this is where I depart from a lot of these like like you know libertarian bros out there who are just like let Elon be Elon. I'm like, look, I, I like so much about what he does that doesn't mean i like everything he does and just because he opposes this doesn't mean that like the messiah has spoken and we all must fall in line you know which it seems like the conversation online resembles that it's it goes back to the thing from several election cycles ago the argument about it was 2012 i think about whether or not you built that right like that that whole like right because i i i think it was obama said something like you know you didn't to romney yeah like you didn't build that right your business because there's so many things that society does collectively to make everybody successful and you know we could relitigate that or we could just go to the fact that like I mean, to me, the simplest uh, response to, to a billionaire tax, anybody who's got a problem with it is like, look, billionaires will still be billionaires after they pay the billionaire tax. So yeah. like, what's the problem here? Like, I mean, it, it, like Elon Musk still going to be the richest human in the world. Like, I, I'm sorry, like, I, I'm not going to cry about him having to pay more in taxes. Yeah, because his buddies are going to have to pay the same tax, you know? So, exactly. like, this dick measuring contest that they're in can still go on, and we could still have space races and shit. Jason, I have a pretty cool roof deck in my apartment, and I store things up there because I live in Manhattan, and I don't have a lot of space. And sometimes I get worried about my possessions up there, but I don't have to worry anymore because Simply Safe just launched their new wireless outdoor security camera. This is the system that U.S. News & World Report names the best home security system of 2021, and it just got even better. I am glad that you got a wireless outdoor security camera from Simply Safe. I mean, I think it sounds like it's going to serve you very well. It has a built-in spotlight with color night vision. It's super simple to set up and usually just takes minutes, and it has an easy-to-remove rechargeable battery so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all, and it integrates with your Simply Safe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, it means every door, window, and room are protected, and now your property will be too. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/majority54. What's more, Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com/majority54. Robbie and I are aging. From the beginning of this podcast to now, we've aged during this time. And the fatigue and the lack of endurance that you feel as you age, a lot of people make the mistake of just filling that with more and more caffeine. But there are other ways to handle this. For instance, there's Super Beats Heart Shoes. These things are so healthy for you and so tasty. And I'm tempted to hand these things out for Halloween when the kids <laughs> come around the neighborhood. Super Beats Heart Shoes are unique, clinically researched grapeseed extract. Uh, and they're there to promote heart healthy energy and normal blood pressure as part of a healthy lifestyle. And you could join over one million customers and get free shipping and free returns, a 90-day money-back guarantee, and 30% off your first order right now at superbeats.com slash 5-4. That's superbeats.com slash 5-4 for 30% off your first order. That's superbeats.com slash 5-4. January 6th, Jason. Uh, the Rolling Stone magazine, still going strong after all these years, they came out with a story uh, they broke a story that two people who were who helped plan the rallies during January 6th say that they were coordinating with members of Congress ahead of the protest and members of Congress's office. They said they had uh, dozens of planning meetings. 
they they singled out a few members of Congress, which also included Marjorie Taylor Greene, Mo Brooks, Madison Cawthorn. Um, they said that Mark Meadows, you know, then chief of staff to Trump, played a significant role, and that Representative, I think it's Gosser, Gosar, floated a blanket pardon to the demonstrators, and. Uh, you know, the, the people accused of coordinating had very different responses. Some were like, how dare you accuse me? And then others like Mo Brooks, Mo Brooks said, I wasn't participating in these meetings, but if my staff did, I would be proud of them. Jason, and that's a real, so that's a real profile in courage. Like, uh, I'm not yeah. actually willing to go to prison. Um, if you would like to take some of my staff, that would be fine. I will, however, enjoy the political benefit on the right uh, for it. Thank you very much. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, yeah, that's and amazing. I, I'm as tired of talking about January 6th as anybody. They're members of my family. If longtime listeners know I haven't spoken to you since January 6th. But it just, it's just, it's like this narrative has changed from all these Republicans being this is a stain on our legacy to now there's like tons of conspiracy theories out there that it was like an inside job from the Fed that are being trafficked by various serious members of the right or prominent members of the right. And they're now saying that they would encourage that they'd be proud of their staffers as they participated. I mean, it's just the goalposts keep moving here. Okay, a couple things about this. One, I saw somebody say recently, and I think it's absolutely right, that the reason we have to care about January 6th is because the thing that always precedes a successful coup is an unsuccessful coup. Uh, I mean, so like we should worry about it because generally before a successful coup, there is an attempted coup that fails. Uh, And so we've already had that. So we got to take it seriously. Uh, The other thing here is that I am in no way surprised uh, that there are members of Congress who um, were coordinating uh, with this because they thought one of two things. Either they thought this will be a successful coup and I'll be on the winning side of a coup. Or they thought they didn't like really understand it was a coup and they just thought, oh, we're just going to take the capital and we're, you know, uh, either way, they thought it was to their benefit because either they thought they were going to be on the winning side of a coup or they were thinking, I'd really like to run for president or I'd really like to go from the House to the Senate. And they're all, all those people you mentioned are all people who are going to do it in ways where they go to the far right and they, they outright wing everybody else in their party for whatever they're going to run for next. For all of those people, it was to their benefit to coordinate this massive, whatever they thought it was going to be, whether they thought it was going to be a coup or they thought it was going to be this day that they would talk about forever. Either way, they were all properly incentivized to do it. And so I'm sure all of them are totally guilty. Yeah, it's I don't know what to do about all this. Right. We're doing this. There's this commission that's investigating. I think it's important to to let that play out, uh, you know, put this in the historical record and then litigate this at the ballot box come next November when many of these members are uh, on the line. Unfortunately, so many of these people are in safe districts. So it's, you know, we kind of have to attach the people who enable them to the political legacy of January 6th. Uh, and, you know, this this gets back to the Virginia conversation, which is the most effective hits on Glenn Youngkin are his connection to Donald Trump and the fact that he flirts with election integrity in quotes. Right. And I think this continues to be a loser. You know, not that this is about politics alone, but I think politics is where the consequences come in. We have to keep attaching this insanity to the party that is responsible for it, because not only is that the substantive moral thing to do, but also effective political thing to do. I think voters, I I, I have confidence that voters continue to think that this is uh, this was a disgrace. And I also think that we have to continue to keep talking about it, because if we don't, 
the vacuum will be filled by lunatic fringe different disinformation pyromaniacs and, and that's where you know what is a an important conversation that we can hang around their neck becomes a, an important conversation that they hang around our necks which they're capable of doing totally i mean people genuinely like in the absence of of a story people will, will accept a story that's made up and so if you if you don't tell people over and over again what happened the right wing is going to make it up and people are going to believe something else what people can do about it right now is they can get involved in uh, campaigns for local election authorities and for state election authorities, because ultimately the way this coup, uh, a successful coup would happen, it would have to involve secretaries of state, county clerks, county recorders, county auditors, the people who uh, run this stuff at the local level. So, you know, shameless plug for my friend, Adrian Fontes, who's been on the show before, who's now running for secretary of state of Arizona. Um, and that's going to be a heck of a fight. And Arizona is going to be a state where it, I promise you, it's going to matter whether you have somebody who's, who's calling balls and strikes fairly uh, in, in the secretary of state's office. So, I'm worried about it, and that's why I'll continue to focus on making sure we have good people uh, in charge of running the elections. In This Week in Misinformation, there is a lot of activity swirling around Dr. Anthony Fauci. And there are two things happening at once. I mean, there's more than one, but there are two things happening. And, and I'm going to talk about one of them. But one that we're not going to talk about today is that there is this accusation that the NIH is funding research that's torturing dogs in Africa. I will get back to this one uh, at some point in a future episode. I, I have not been able to verify the veracity of this one. I just know it's it's making the rounds a ton and it's concerning me greatly. So I will, I will get, maybe next week we can touch on that. But the one that I think is way more complicated, at least after I looked into it, is this accusation that Anthony Fauci lied before Congress earlier this year when he was asked by Rand Paul whether the NIH or the government was funding what's called gain-of-function research in Wuhan province in China. And Fauci steadfastly denied that the NIH was funding this type of research. And essentially, gain-of-function means, I think, I mean, and we have actually really smart scientists who listen to this podcast, so forgive me, but essentially making a virus more potent so that it spreads faster and, and more potent and it's spread to humans. Fauci denied that we were funding this research, and then um, an article came out this past week that uh, seemed to suggest that the NIH was funding research to a company called EcoHealth, I think was the name of it, that was doing something very close to gain-of-function research. And there's a huge debate about whether it actually technically was gain-of-function research and all that. I think this is a big deal because I, as you are, am very invested in Anthony Fauci being successful. I root for him. I do think this was a mistake one way or the other. I think either he knew that this research was happening, which I think is unlikely that he would lie to Congress, but either he knew this research was happening and he lied or didn't tell the full truth because even if it was technically about gain of function, what Rand Paul was asking, he knew the, the, the gist of what was being asked and he should have provided the full context. Or he didn't know, which I think is the most likely scenario. And that is problematic because this research is pretty serious research. And it was so central to this the story around the pandemic. And it, it's just frustrating that the NIH wouldn't know about this research that they're funding. According to the NIH, what they're saying is, is that this research happened uh, in as a it was beyond the grant that they had given and that that they only found out in August that the that the organization had actually violated the terms of of the grant. So if that's true, then he didn't know and he didn't have reason to expect it. Yeah, this is where it gets tricky, right? 
the, the organization that got this grant has a video that they ah, posted of them this. uploading their data to the NIH. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I've seen media. I've seen media companies say this is the smoking gun that they knew. It is a frustrating conversation. Uh, I do not think this proves that that the virus was man-made and that there was some kind of conspiracy between the United yeah, States I mean, government and NIH China to spread it. NIH is claiming that it like that what they worked on was so distinct from what caused the pandemic that it couldn't be. But who knows? Right. I, I don't think this proves what people say it proves. It's not. I, I continue to believe that the the man-made hypothesis is possible, but not like in any way proven. Uh, I do think that we screwed up, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, the, the conversation, not we, but the, our society, like Facebook was banning people from even making that claim for a period of time, which I know only makes this conversation harder because then the people who believe that dig in. It's frustrating. I, I, I would just say this. I hope that Fauci... The best explanation comes out about this because I root for him. It is frustrating. I hope the NIH didn't have this data, didn't know about it. It, it. They should figure out why it is that they're funding things maybe that they don't know about that are kind of dangerous. Like that seems really serious, you know? I think this is the kind of thing that merits a lot of attention is what I'm saying. Like either way, and I think that the attention actually can take some of the steam out of the, the conspiracies around it, you know? Yeah, I think because the conspiracies are really dangerous because you've got Madison Cawthorn like going on the House floor and I I don't remember what he, what he call him the demon doctor or something like that. I mean, like yeah, when you're calling people in public office demons, like there are people in America who will be like, "Roger, got it, demon, N know yeah. what to do about that," and that's 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 horrible. Um, so uh, I anyway, it, it is it's it's concerning politically, but it's also just like as a human thing, like really concerning because there's people who could be in a lot of danger when, with this kind of rhetoric. Right. Well, we'll continue monitoring the situation and we'll get to the bottom of the puppy situation for uh, future podcasts. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that's rolling around this, this dark place we call the internet, Jason. For grabbing or thank you to everybody uh, for your comments about uh, the episode last week about the Dave Chappelle special and, and the controversy surrounding it. We really enjoyed having that conversation about comedy and social commentary and you know the role they play in society and how they intersect. Uh, but just so you know, we we have been planning for a while and continue to plan to have an episode that uh, focuses specifically on the trans community, where we will absolutely have a member of the trans community on that episode. So look for that in the next few weeks. Uh, separately, uh, as we go forward, this is exciting. We we are going to do, and this is where we get to the grab and or part of this, we are going to do an episode soon uh, for all of you as you prepare for Thanksgiving dinner, for Christmas dinner, uh, and as you're around that family table with members of your family who might be more conservative, we want to help prepare you for that as we tried to do uh, last year, tried to do last year, and we'll do in the future. We're going to do more of a live mailbag episode where live meaning us, like me, Ravi, and one of you helping you plan for your specific relatives. If you want to be that person and you think you're the perfect person for us to model this with by airing a conversation where we help you get ready for Thanksgiving dinner, uh, leave us a voicemail and make your case and tell us why it should be you and why you sort of have kind of the perfect cast of characters at your table uh, for us to help you you navigate. So that voicemail, uh, as usual, is 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. We'd love to hear from you and uh, very possibly we'd love to have you on the show.
All right, as, as always, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Lots of content there about uh, the lost debate. Uh, you can see all sorts of good stuff, like pictures of, hey, we're doing this now. I'm always promoting Ravi's Instagram. Uh, so, uh, you know, go check that out. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. So, Jason, when I was running Arena, one of our biggest friendly competitors was a group called Run For Something. And they were frustratingly awesome at what they did because Amanda Littman, who's their leader, is just super talented and she's such a great storyteller. And, Jason, that's why I'm excited about her podcast. I'm a huge Amanda Littman fan and a huge Run For Something fan. And my Amanda story is several years ago, a little meeting was convened of groups to brief then former Vice President Biden, like right after um, Obama's presidency ended. And there were five or six of us in the room. I was there on behalf of Let America Vote. And that's when I met Amanda Littman, who got up and her beginning of her PowerPoint presentation was, you know, everybody says we should build the bench. Like we're building the damn bench. So now she has a podcast uh, and now we will tell you what we were supposed to tell you about it, which it starts this way. Have you ever thought about running for office? Let Run For Something, the podcast, convince you. Hosted by political operative Amanda Littman, who's literally written a book on how to run. Tune in every Tuesday to meet some amazing local candidates and newly elected public servants. They are parents, scientists, teachers, refugees, artists, veterans, and more of all races and ethnicities. The one thing they all share is their commitment to solving problems in their communities. If you're new to the political process, don't worry. Amanda explains how the whole thing works. Subscribe and listen in for a conversation about politics that, in spite of everything, will make you hopeful for the future. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.